welcome to iOS 14, Privacy and the Future of Digital Advertising. I'm your host, Eric Sufert. On Monday, March 1st, I gave a presentation on Clubhouse called iOS 14, Privacy and the Future of Digital Advertising. Because Clubhouse rooms can't be recorded, and because a number of people asked for the presentation to be shared, I'm recording the presentation as this podcast. I haven't edited the presentation at all, except for this introductory portion, although the Q&A that followed the presentation in the Clubhouse room is lost forever to the ether. With that said, I'm happy to present iOS 14, Privacy, and the Future of Digital Advertising. First, some background. What is new in iOS 14, and what is ATT? At WWDC last June, Apple announced that developers would need to expose an opt-in prompt to users in order to access their device IDFAs, or identifiers for advertisers, through a new privacy policy called App Tracking Transparency, or ATT. The ATT prompt text reads, quote, app name, unquote, would like permission to track you across apps and websites owned by other companies. And it is accompanied by two buttons that read, allow tracking and ask app not to track. The IDFA is the advertising device ID that Apple introduced after it deprecated the UDID in 2012. The IDFA is resettable, and it was also governed by a setting called Limit Ad Tracking that was launched in 2016 and which obfuscates the IDFA for all apps at the device level when turned on. ATT effectively replicates LAT on an app-by-app basis. LAT rates, or the percentage of devices where the IDFA is obfuscated, sat at around 30-40% to in the U.S. last year. Apple's announcement in June was initially interpreted narrowly to mean that ATT was simply a mechanism that controlled access to the IDFA. In other words, advertisers initially believed that the practical consequence of an ATT opt-out was that an app would not be able to access the IDFA, but that no other constraints would be asserted against the app's ability to collect data and to use that data for ads tracking. Many advertisers decided in the early days following Apple's announcement that they would simply not show the prompt at all and forego use of the IDFA altogether, replacing it with other identifiers. Facebook, for instance, said exactly that in August 2020. It wouldn't show the ATT prompt in its apps and would excise the IDFA from its customer records. That consensus opinion, in the time between June and when things became more clear, always seemed suspect and misguided to me. Why would Apple institute a major sweeping policy change for iOS and then allow for workarounds and loopholes to undermine it? Also, at WWDC, Apple did announce that fingerprinting would not be allowed for ad tracking as part of the new ATT policy. Regardless, the scope of the ATT policy became much clearer in December when Facebook updated its iOS 14 guidance. Facebook revealed that it was told by Apple that it must expose the ATT prompt in its apps or risk having them removed from the App Store. And, critically, Facebook revealed that the ATT prompt applies broadly to all mobile advertising, including including mobile web campaigns. This was a momentous revelation, as previously ATT was thought to only apply to app advertising campaigns. What Facebook essentially disclosed was, Apple sees ATT as a policy, not an IDFA gating mechanic, and adherence to ATT guidelines is expected to be total. If a user has opted out of tracking via the ATT prompt, their data cannot be collected and paired with third-party data for the purposes of ad targeting, regardless of how that might be accomplished and with what identifiers. Apple later clarified further what it expects to not be used for ad tracking given an ATT opt-out, hashed emails, IP addresses, the user's location, and various device configurations. What Facebook revealed in its December update was that no mechanism may be used for aggregating data at the user level for the purposes of tracking in the case of an ATT opt-out. 
For web campaigns, ATT governs the use of tracking pixels for user-level data collection. For app campaigns, ATT governs the use of the IDFA for user-level data collection. And for all campaigns, other identity options like device fingerprints, email addresses, etc., as well as back-end conversion APIs like Facebook's, can't be used as they are now if the user has not given consent. It's important here to acknowledge what these various mechanics provide to ad networks. Tracking mechanisms like the Facebook Pixel and Facebook SDK are pervasive. These implements give Facebook and other ad platforms full transparency into what users do on websites and in apps. With that transparency, ad platforms are able to build personal profiles of users based on their interactions on third-party apps and websites. The ad platforms know what users engage with and what they buy, and they use this data to target ads through proclivity modeling. When an ad platform knows what you or I engage with or buy, then it's fairly straightforward to know what kinds of ads it should expose to us. Note that this third-party purchase and engagement data is astonishingly valuable for ad targeting, much more so than the first-party data the platforms collect directly from users. Prior to ATT, ad platforms used that visibility into what users engage with and buy on third-party websites and apps, what I call their events stream, to build robust proclivity profiles that they used to target ads. Post-ATT, or in the ATT environment, for opted-out users, ad platforms will lose that stream. They won't receive events that are indexed with identifiers such as the IDFA or the Facebook ID. What Apple introduced at WWDC was the second iteration of its SK Ad Network framework, which it launched in 2018. SK Ad Network is how attribution will be done for mobile app campaigns for users that have opted out of ATT. On the web, Apple recently launched Private Click Measurement, or PCM, which is how web events will be attributed for opted out users. A detailed discussion of these frameworks goes well beyond the scope of this presentation, but essentially both SK Ad Network and PCM aggregate advertising data at the level of the campaign and allow for one conversion event or instrumented prioritized on-site event to be transmitted back to the advertising network in a postback for every acquired user. There's a lot of functionality and nuance to unpack for both of these frameworks, so anyone who isn't familiar with them should read further on Mobile Dev Memo. What's being lost with ATT are the two buckets of functionality that identifiers like the IDFA provide to ad networks, measurement and targeting. Measurement means that the ad network has visibility into the revenue and engagement that results from the ads it delivers to advertisers. The way this works now is that users are stamped or attributed with the campaign source of the ad they clicked on and any subsequent action they take on that site is transmitted back to the ad network that delivered them and credited to that source campaign. This goes away with ATT for opted out users because ATT only allows for one event to be attributed to the campaign for one user and only at the campaign level and not the ad set or ad group level or ad level. More on this later in the mitigation strategies section, but this lack of measurement, the inability to track all revenue generated by ad campaigns in calculating return on investment or ROI or sometimes called ROAS, return on ad spend, will cause a great deal of friction in advertising optimization, and it is a very impactful disruption. And the second bucket, targeting, is what I discussed before, the feedback loop between ad impressions, ad clicks, engagement, purchases, etc., allows ad platforms to very personally target ads to users on the basis of their past behaviors. This goes away completely. Targeting will get much less granular and without any history of the user's interactions with certain types of products. This type of targeting is a sine qua non of marketing for many consumer verticals, especially within DTC and mobile apps. These verticals will find it almost impossible to operate without being able to target relevant users against behavioral profiles. Just to recap before moving on to the next section, here's an overview of the impact of ATT. 
This is, of course, subject to change, as this is a fairly dynamic situation. If a user has opted out of the ATT opt-in window, their IDFA will be inaccessible, and any data used to attribute them to a source campaign will be transmitted at the campaign level, not the user level, using SK Ad Network for mobile app campaigns or some variant of PCM for mobile web campaigns, such as Facebook's AEM, which was modeled on PCM. Apple has specifically called out other methods of attribution, such as device fingerprinting and using hashed emails as breaching ATT policy, and all the major ad platforms seem to be working to fully comply with ATT. For instance, Facebook is only accepting data via the Conversions API in accordance with its AEM structure, and it isn't matching users that have opted out for custom audiences. Only up to one event will be attributed to a campaign per user. This will dramatically reduce the number and scope of events that campaigns receive to use in optimization. ATT will materially impair user-centric, profile-centric ad targeting. Platforms won't have attributable events to use for targeting users based on behavioral history. And ATT will mostly extinguish retargeting and custom audience targeting for mobile app campaigns. One thing I want to flag here before moving on is that there has been no good news since ATT was announced in June. Every piece of new information that we've received, and it has all been from ad platforms because Apple has been utterly silent in terms of clarity around ATT, has resolved the general understanding of ATT to be even worse, even more painful, and even more forceful than was previously understood. We know how serious Apple is taking ATT by what the major ad platforms have announced, ostensibly after closed-door meetings. But there is no reason for optimism in terms of ATT having a muted impact or engendering some kind of hybrid approach that salvages existing ad infrastructure or measurement or workflow. What I mean by this is, ATT is the future. The most radical interpretation of how severely ATT will be enforced is probably the correct one. ATT will require new infrastructure and new measurement methodologies. ATT does not kill advertising, but it kills the status quo around measurement and targeting, and advertisers need to adapt to that rather than grieving or bargaining or conceiving of workarounds. So, with that out of the way, what are Apple's motivations with ATT? First, it should be stated that ATT is an earthquake. ATT is a tectonic shift that alters the geography of the mobile advertising landscape. ATT fits into the broader privacy transformation being applied to digital advertising on the browser with Apple's ITP launched in 2017 and the upcoming deprecation of third-party cookies on Chrome that catalyzed Google's privacy sandbox. Each of these policies has specific applications and going into detail around them is beyond the scope of this presentation, but what they portend is a future of interest-based targeting and an aggregated campaign level measurement. Profile-based targeting is being phased out and isn't something that advertisers should expect to rely on going forward. ATT is just one part of this, but generally, this privacy project is being led by Apple. That digital advertising is evolving in the direction of differential privacy should be seen as ineluctable in the long term. That said, I think Apple had four primary motivations in rolling out ATT. The first is a genuine concern for consumer privacy. Tim Cook does seem sincere in his desire to protect iOS users' privacy, and he has been very publicly critical of companies like Facebook for years. The second is that Apple runs an ad network, and ATT will benefit that ad network. I'll go into more specifics later, but Apple's ASA ad network is probably best positioned to gain market share heading into ATT. That said, whatever increase in revenue Apple sees with ASA will not be transformational for the company, and I don't see its improved ad network revenues as singularly driving the decision. The third motivation was to hurt Facebook. Facebook has been drifting out of its lane for years, 
bringing more and more content interactions into its apps in ways that only superficially conform to the no app stores in the app store statute. ATT seems almost purpose-built to inflict maximum pain on Facebook specifically. And fourth, and I think the primary motivation of the four, is to regain control of content distribution on iOS. I discuss this in more detail later, but the App Store has basically become an irritating pit stop between an ad click and an app install. App discovery is now driven via advertising, and Apple has very little control over which apps become popular on its platform. If Apple is able to paralyze digital advertising, its App Store once again becomes the principal point of search and discovery for mobile content. This also gives Apple much more leverage in battles like the one it is fighting with Epic. If the App Store is not just an annoying intermediary step between clicking on an ad and installing an app, but is rather the primary point from which content is discovered, then it has a much better case for demanding that developers must use App Store payment processing. I wanted to take the time to outline what I believe Apple's motivations are with ATT because I think it's impossible to really assess how Apple will regulate and enforce ATT without first considering what it is trying to achieve with ATT. If ATT is seen as a perfunctory box to check, almost as a privacy performance, in a nod to consumers, then one might not expect ATT to be enforced vigorously. If, on the other hand, ATT is seen as a means of regaining content control on iOS and fortifying its platform primacy, then one would expect ATT to be enforced very forcefully. I believe that the latter is true, that Apple is using ATT strategically to strengthen its market power with respect to operating the App Store, and so I expect that ATT policy will be enforced to the maximum extent. I want to take a minute here to consider the nature of ads personalization. I've made the case publicly before that I believe that ads personalization is a public good. Ads personalization allows companies that build products to reach relevant audiences efficiently. It allows companies to monetize engagement in their products to a meaningful, consequential standard. And it allows users to enjoy free content experiences and content experiences that are consistent with their preferences. The way that user behavioral profiles are assembled now is not sustainable. User data is aggregated and shared across entities in a way that consumers wouldn't intuitively understand or find acceptable. Simply put, the IDFA needs to be retired. It has been abused by app developers, ad tech companies, and data brokers, and allows for a level of surveillance that users aren't cognizant of. I wrote an article called IDFA is the hydrocarbon of the mobile ecosystem that goes through this argument in detail, and so I won't relitigate it now. A constructive privacy policy relating to digital advertising would preserve the benefits of ads personalization while extinguishing the negative externalities that identity-based profile construction presents. I don't believe that ATT does that, and I don't believe that ATT is designed to do that. ATT seems designed primarily to benefit Apple. I believe that Apple constructed ATT under the guise of consumer privacy protection in order to impair performance advertising, damage the open web, and to entrench and consolidate market power with its own closed ecosystem. So, ATT is problematic. I'll lay out why I believe that is the case with four broad points. First, Apple doesn't actually provide real consumer choice with its opt-in prompt. Apple seems to imply with the prompt that the user's choice between being tracked or not tracked is merely the difference between their data being collected by app developers and that the choice produces no other consequences. But in reality, digital privacy is a spectrum that presents users with trade-offs. The freemium economy is built atop a foundation of personalization, in-product personalization, and advertising personalization. 
If freemium products can't be efficiently distributed with granularly targeted ads, they'll need to either charge for access or they'll become economically non-viable. Apple doesn't apprise users of this reality in the prompt. Are users aware that their favorite free products and services might become unavailable as a result of ATT? And does Apple, as the operator of a mobile platform, benefit from that? If products can't survive or thrive through advertising, then those products become more dependent on the platform operator for distribution. Second, Apple gives itself a separate privacy setting that governs whether its own ad network can personalize ads, but it confronts users with intimidating language around tracking for other ad networks. Yes, it's true that Apple does not quote-unquote track users with its own ad network, but this is only according to the very specific definition of the term tracking that Apple has concocted. What Apple does is group users into interest-based segments based on usage of its first-party products. But would a digital privacy purist accept that? Apple is making a specific distinction between using data gathered solely on first-party products and data gathered across third-party products for ad targeting. Why is Apple's approach necessarily more protective of a user's privacy? What recourse does the user have to prevent any of their usage data to be used in ad targeting? Apple gets to define tracking, and then it gets to define the privacy spectrum with its own approach at the extreme protective end and tracking at the extreme exploitative end. But in reality, Apple's approach of only gathering and using first-party behavioral data for ads targeting is somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. If Apple wants to give total privacy protection to users, it should implement a no data collection for ad targeting solution that prevents even its own products from collecting user data to target ads. The ATT prompt seems to undermine the notion of that spectrum of privacy. A user is either utterly and totally surveilled or none of their usage data is being utilized for ads targeting. This is a cynical misrepresentation. I think it's important to take the opportunity here to really define what is meant by the word privacy in the context of digital products. In reality, privacy as it relates to digital products is a trade-off between data collection and usage and product functionality. If my usage of a product cre creates data artifacts, do I have a credible claim to those artifacts as being my personal property? Apple's contention seems to be that users do not, which is why it features a separate setting for ads personalization in iOS that only applies to its own ad network. Apple's definition of tracking is such that the data artifacts belong to the developer of the product but may not be exchanged with a third party for the purposes of ad targeting. That's fine, but that's the middle point of the spectrum, not the extreme point that represents total privacy protection. I want to hover on this idea of Apple using ATT as a means of protecting its own platform primacy for a moment. If we consider what very efficient, very granularly targeted advertising provides, it's basically a matching mechanism between supply and demand. Very efficient and well-targeted advertising should, in a sense, front-run any need for a user to ever search for content. If I can match a user with the content they're interested in and do it at exactly the right moment, then advertising effectively serves the content discovery function. And when that is true, the App Store looks more like a middleman, an unnecessary point of friction between discovery, which is the ad click, and content interaction. Consider all of this in context of the evolution of digital content platforms away from direct dependencies on hardware form factors. When I watch Disney+, Plus, is the hardware I'm watching it on relevant? I could be watching it on my iPhone, or my Windows tablet, or my Samsung TV. The delivery device is largely irrelevant. I expect my content to be available across all of my devices streamed from the cloud. I describe this transformation in a three-part series of articles that starts with one titled The Current War Between Apple and Facebook. Effectively, 
A content platform will increasingly begin to look like a constellation of properties that are accessible across many or all hardware form factors. And the idea of a direct relationship between a platform and a proprietary hardware form factor, as exists with the App Store and the iPhone, will become anachronistic. I believe that ATT is Apple's attempt to prolong that dependency, that content and content distribution is specifically and irrevocably tied to the hardware form factor it is consumed from. Apple wants to prolong the operating status quo for as long as it can because losing that dependency means having to compete directly with developers on the basis of content. Apple has attempted to preserve this relationship through brute force measures such as blocking app stores within the app store, preventing games streaming services from publishing to the app store, and forcing the use of its own payment gateways. But Apple can achieve this in a much more furtive way by diminishing the effectiveness of advertising. It can appear to be a champion of user privacy while also entrenching its central content distribution and discovery role in its own closed ecosystem. And it can privilege the effectiveness of its own ad network in the process. So the third reason that I believe ATT is problematic, ATT will simply enrich the value of first party data and create more walled gardens. I wrote an article about this two weeks ago titled The Profound Unintended Consequence of ATT, Content Fortresses. The general idea is that if ad platforms can no longer efficiently connect supply and demand via serving ads, they'll subsume those content interactions into their own properties, and the artifacts of those interactions become first-party data. They'll become content fortresses. The crux of my content subsumption thesis is that advertising is just a means of leasing eyeballs out. If that engagement can't be cost-effectively routed, then why wouldn't platforms ask publishers to move those interactions onto their own properties and sell advertising against that? We've seen this in OTT apps in China, and Facebook has been moving in this direction for years, with instant games, with instant articles, with FB shops that it launched last year and accelerated during COVID. The point is, are consumers better off if, instead of Facebook serving as a routing service between supply and demand, publishers and users, it simply ingests that publishing capability onto its service? Publishers become more dependent on Facebook and the other platforms and have fewer competitive alternatives. This could result in less real choice for consumers and a much less competitive content ecosystem on mobile. Fourth, Apple has implemented ATT in a haphazard way that seems specifically designed to impair the effectiveness of performance advertising. The SK ad network framework that Apple is providing to advertisers is inadequate. It's unnecessarily punitive and injures advertising beyond the degree to which a differential privacy solution necessitates. Google's privacy sandbox is a thoughtful approach to differential privacy but it is being rolled out slowly, in moderation, with input from the advertising industry. SK Ad Network was first introduced in 2018, and at the time, it attracted very little fanfare and was dismissed by most in the industry. I wrote an article in April 2018 titled, Will Apple Redefine Mobile Advertising with SK Ad Network? But beyond idle speculation, few people paid attention to SK Ad Network until WWDC 2020. SK Ad Network is deficient. It doesn't include parameters that are necessary for optimizing ad campaigns and that wouldn't reduce privacy protections. One of these is a creative ID. Given the privacy threshold for conversion counts that is mandated for reporting with SK Ad Network, allowing for the creative ID of an ad click would do nothing to increase the degree to which a user can be attributed to a campaign. Yet its absence eliminates an important vector of optimization for advertisers. And Apple acknowledges this. It includes a creative parameter in the API spec for its own ad network, Apple Search Ads. Why are advertisers allowed to receive a creative ID for Apple Search Ads campaigns, but not for any other campaigns? This is a practical matter, but at the moment, in March 2021, less than one month before ATT is believed to be rolled out, SK Ad Network is completely dysfunctional. 
Only a handful of ad networks are even allowing advertisers to run SK Ad Network verified campaigns. And even those networks are generally having problems with reporting, with advertisers receiving just a small percentage of expected SK Ad Network postbacks, and often with incomplete parameter information, for instance, conversion values and publisher site IDs. Right now, as I speak, SK Ad Network is ostensibly broken. So beyond lacking fundamental functionality that any advertiser would expect, even from a differential privacy solution, it simply isn't working to the degree that advertisers can begin to rebuild their ad serving and ad targeting infrastructure to accommodate. Advertisers are worried. I don't know a single advertiser that feels prepared for ATT's rollout. Okay, so we have background on ATT and some commentary on why Apple has implemented it. How should advertisers adapt? What can advertisers do to accommodate these limitations in their marketing strategies? I bucket the mitigation strategies into four broad groups, retention, personalization, product strategy, and campaign optimization. Retention. I think the first place to start is to connect to consumers via first-party data in as many ways as possible. ATT is going to make it much harder for advertisers to acquire new users, and so advertisers must focus on retaining their existing users. Relationship management will become critical across the different contact methods that developers can capture in a first-party way. Remember that an email address collected directly from the product can't be used for ad targeting on third-party platforms, but there's nothing stopping the developer from using it to communicate directly with the consumer. Retention will be seen as an imperative in terms of product design going forward, even more so than it already is, because acquisition won't be something that an advertiser can depend on to yield a 90-day or a 100-day LTV, or to yield an AOV that supports continuous acquisition. The precision of platforms like Facebook and Google allows advertisers to essentially lazily reacquire users that they should have done a better job of retaining for the longer term. As targeting gets less precise, acquisition will become less efficient, and workable unit economics will require that a user express an LTV over a longer lifetime. The acquire to reacquire lifecycle, to which many advertisers have grown accustomed, will simply cease being manageable. Personalization. Dovetailing into the retention strategy is product personalization. Improved retention increases the lifetime over which a user can contribute revenues, but personalization increases the degree to which those users monetize. What the precision targeting of platforms like Facebook provided was an inbound stream of relevant users. Because these ad platforms responded to in-product signals like purchases, ads to cart, registrations, etc., and created feedback loops on that basis, the ad platforms did the filtering and delivered qualified users into the singular product experience. That will need to change in the face of ATT. Platforms will deliver users that are far less qualified, and so the product will need to segment users into buckets and optimize the product experience to those buckets in pursuit of optimized monetization. I see this done superficially now with bandit systems and products for things like early stage offers or even content recommendations but these efforts will need to become much more sophisticated once the traffic entering products becomes less relevant. Many products should prepare for a dramatic collapse of product metrics like early stage retention, ARPU, ARPDAO, RPPU, etc. as traffic becomes less targeted. New systems will need to be built to personalize the product experience such that each user is presented with the content they are most likely to engage and monetize with, given the traffic will be less homogenous and tested against that aforementioned event-based acquisition feedback loop. These kinds of personalization projects are challenging. They are substantial undertakings, they require specialist data science skill, and many product managers are unaccustomed to building products this way. But this approach to building products will nonetheless become a major factor in developing competitive advantage as marketing can less dependably deliver relevant users. Product Strategy 
Inherent in the debilitation of advertising efficiency is that products will need to have broader appeal in order to be advertised more broadly. This may be counterintuitive since many digital product products now are targeted very broadly on platforms like Facebook and Google, even if their audiences are niche. But this is only because these platforms can pair relevant users with products so capably. The purposes of targeting broadly is to give an ad platform as much audience surface area as possible to explore potential pairings between users, products, and the ad creative that creates the most resonance between those two things. Facebook, Google, and other platforms have become massive experimentation engines that optimize targeting in real time based on the feedback loop between ad impressions, clicks, engagement, and monetization. This feedback loop breaks at the user level and is only implement implementable at the campaign level with differential privacy. Ad platforms will no longer be able to build proclivity profiles of users that can be used for granular user level targeting. When targeting then moves to interest groups and demographic features, the viable audience being targeted must necessarily increase or ad campaigns will waste too many impressions to run profitably. What granular profile-based targeting allowed companies to do is to build niche products and advertise to the small audiences for those products very efficiently. But that is going away with cohort-level performance aggregates. Addressable audiences will need to be larger, and products will need to be more broadly appealing. This acutely impacts some classes of niche D2C products and many app verticals that saw success with low DAU but high ARPDAO. Acquiring users for these products will be more expensive going forward given the decreased efficiency of targeting. It's important to keep in mind here that efficiency doesn't only relate to ad impressions prices. I wrote a piece about this last week called The CPM Math Doesn't Work, the crux of which is, just because impressions become cheaper doesn't mean all advertisers are able to maintain or increase spend. The problem with diminished targeting efficiency is that the entire funnel degrades, not just click-through rates, but retention rates, monetization rates, etc. All of this impacts the monetization side of the ROI equation. Building broader products with larger total addressable markets reduces the degree to which a degradation of granular targeting impacts that entire funnel contraction. Campaign optimization. I save campaign optimization for last because relatively little is known about how the platforms are going to accommodate ATT and so it's impossible to give specific guidance around advertising execution. I'd advise advertisers to think through three big changes to the way they operate. The first is with ROI modeling. Most advertisers' ROI models will need to be totally recalibrated as a result of ATT. First, the composition of their cohorts will change as targeting becomes much less granular, and so the projections the models currently make around cumulative cohort monetization will change. If cohorts are much less qualified, then underlying LTV curves will likely flatten, and so cohort monetization data can't be projected out without reconstituting the entire curve. Second, since individual users will no longer be attributed at the campaign level, since only campaign aggregates will be posted back to ad platforms, then only day zero can be used to project out to some target LTV. Before, we could track cohorts at the campaign level through day one, two, three, seven, whatever, to get to a good proxy metric for whatever the company's LTV target is. That won't be possible because with SK Ad Network and private click management and Facebook's AEM, data is transmitted back to the network within a limited time frame. Creative testing. Creative testing will likely be slower with ATT. Since platforms only have 100 campaign IDs to use with SK Ad Network, and because all performance data is aggregated at the campaign level, the volume of ad creative that can be tested in a given amount of time will decrease. This is because campaign IDs need to be reserved for testing purposes, since ad set and ad group and ad performance will be modeled. 
meaning very few creatives can be deployed in a campaign at a time in order to get campaign feedback that could be modeled down the hierarchy. The practical implication of this is that marketing teams will probably have to slow down their testing cadence and potentially reduce the output of creative they produce in order to match the speed of the platforms in delivering test results. Many marketing creative teams work with a one concept to many variants approach, whereby they'll produce a handful of new creative concepts each week, but then create very many variants for each of those, totaling up to 50 or 100 or more creatives to test each week, or whatever the cadence is. The number of variants per concept will probably need to decrease in this new system since the ad platforms will be running tests with low numbers of variants per campaign ID in order to optimize live campaigns. One quick note here to explain what I mean when I say campaign testing. Facebook has said that mobile app advertisers will be able to run up to 9 campaigns and Google has said 8. The reason they only give access to these few campaign IDs to advertise is that they withhold the other 91 and 92 campaign IDs for automated testing. I also want to flag that Facebook has not yet given any specific guidance around campaign limitations for web campaigns. The third aspect of campaign optimization that teams should be cognizant of is reporting. Teams will have to get very good at imputing monetization to early stage product behaviors because those early stage behaviors are the only context they'll have to use for allocating budget and optimizing campaigns. The nature of SK Ad Network and PCM and AEM is that user-level data is sent back to the ad network but only indexed by campaign ID with up to one prioritized event included in the postback payload. Teams will have to go through the exercise of concocting behaviors to package into these conversion values to receive back from ad platforms. One approach is to value paths that a user can take in the product and then impute an LTV onto that. This means that explicit events aren't being valued themselves but rather combinations of events. A user lands at the site, registers, does a search, clicks on a product, etc., all combine into one conversion event which is valued in some way. This combination of A and B and C and D is what provides context for the LTV signal in the postback, not the last event of the chain, which is D. This kind of work is not trivial and requires regular updating. It's a data science project that propagates target metrics back to the marketing team. That concludes my presentation and I hope that people found it helpful and informative. In the clubhouse room at this point, I opened up the room to discussion and Q&A. Obviously, I can't do that with a podcast, but I'm happy to discuss the content of the presentation, as always, in the Mobile Dev Memo Slack. I hope you enjoy your day.